Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We know last week we began a new year and we talked about change, life change, the things that you want to see happen in your life, your New Year's resolutions and where the power for that kind of a change uh, comes from. We talked about that last Sunday. But I also think it's important as you begin a new year to not just talk about change, but to talk about purpose. Because if our lives are going to change, don't we want them to change in the right direction? And furthermore, if we are followers of Christ, should not He be the one who determines our purpose that orients the change and directs the movement of our lives? And so as we head into 2017, I think it's important for us as followers of Christ to reflect a moment on the purpose that God has for you and for me. Now, when we talk about purpose in the Christian life, oftentimes our, our minds float to the last words that Jesus gave, his famous last words. We think about the, the great commission that Jesus gave. And we, we think of that commission as being great many times because it's the last words that he shared as he said to his followers to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. That was the last thing he said, so surely it's the most important, right? But before we, we, we go any further with that, I want to just ask you, are people's last words always their most important? You know, many times, no. I mean, think about it. Abraham Lincoln, his last words were not the Gettysburg Address. You know, John F. Kennedy, his last words were not his ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Martin Luther King Jr., his last words were not his I have a dream speech. Now, why is that? Why is it that our last words many times, most of the time, virtually all the time, are not our most important words? Well, one reason is because we don't know when our last words will be. We just don't know. We have no promise of tomorrow. We have no promise of next month. We, we can't put it on our day timer. So because of that, our last words are not always our most important words. But when we come to these words of Jesus, his last words as recorded in the scripture in Matthew chapter 28 and in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 1, uh, we see these as important. And many times we call them important because they are his last words. But are they great just because they're his last words? Or is there something deeper in his call to us? Friends, I believe that the last words of Christ are not just famous, but they're also great. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of these three expressions of Jesus' last words from Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and Acts 1. And I believe as we look at them a little deeper that what we'll see is that they are important that they are great, and that they are a commission, not just for some people 2,000 years ago, but they are a commission for you and I today as well. So let's read them, and then we'll unpack them a little bit, make some observations about them. We're, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 28. We'll be in verses 16 through 20. Then we're going to turn over to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53, and then we'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. So we'll begin in Matthew 28 and verse 16. These events took place after the crucifixion of Christ, after his resurrection. And in verse 16 of Matthew 28, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then we'll turn to Luke in chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Jesus is talking and he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high." And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And then finally, over in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And so in these three passages, we have some of the last words of Christ, his famous last words, but they also form for us a great commission. Now, as we spend our time today, I want us to make two observations about this great commission that Christ gave to the church. The first observation I want to make is this. This great commission wasn't just great, it was also consistent. It was a great, consistent commission. Now, when we see the three passages that I read in Matthew and Luke and in Acts, we see that there's a number of similarities. There's a consistency in these stories. There are a number of things that are the same. Well, what are some of the things that are similar in these three passages? Well, the first thing we might see that is similar is that these were all messages given to Christ's followers. There was no opposition in the presence of this command. These were the 11 disciples and the 11 plus some friends the 11 plus Mary and some of the other women who were followers. In each of these settings, in each of these instances, there were gatherings of followers of Christ who gathered around Jesus and received from him this commission. That is a similarity among all the passages. 
Another thing that is similar is that there was a charge to take the message that they had received from Jesus and to take it to the ends of the earth. In Matthew, he says, to all nations. In Luke, he says, to proclaim among all the nations. In Acts, he says, to the ends of the earth. But in every instance, there is a a global mandate. There is a call to take this message outside of the bounds of the nation of Israel and to take it to the peoples of the world. It's consistent in all of the passages. Another thing that's consistent is that the Word of God is central. Matthew says to, to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The Word of God, the living Word of God had proclaimed truth, and they were to take that truth and they were to teach it to others. The Word of God was central. Inside of Luke, he says, take this truth that you have heard from the Psalms and the prophets about the Messiah, and I want you to proclaim it among all the people so that they might repent and follow God through Christ. In, in Acts, he says that they are to be witnesses of the things that they had heard and seen from the living God. In every instance, it's the Word of God that is central that they are to take and to proclaim among all the earth, and this was a message that was given to all of the Christ followers. But there's more similarities that we see here. Also, we see that the power and the presence of God is given to ensure the success of this mission. In Matthew, he says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Luke, he says, There's a promise from the Father that is going to come upon you in the city of Jerusalem before you go out to the world. And in Acts, he says, The Spirit will come and empower you on this mission. The success of this mission was so important that God guarantees it with his power and his presence. So to all people, they were to take this message to all the earth, the things they had heard from Christ, empowered by God and with God in and among them. There's another similarity, though. Also that they had a job to do. And that job was more than just being pious. That job was more than just being good boys and girls or showing up to the temple. But they were to be actively engaged in taking this message to the world. We see this consistent message coming to the followers of God in the first century in all three passages. There's a number of similarities. But friends, there's, there's also, let's be honest, there's some differences, isn't there? There's some differences we see in these three passages. Well, what are some of the differences that we see? Well, one of the differences is the, the exact wording. I mean, Jesus said it one way in Matthew, he said it a different way in Luke, he says it a different way in Acts. I mean, there's some different exact wording here. A second thing that we notice is the location is different. In Matthew, where are they? They're up in Galilee, at the mountain that Jesus had designated. Where are they in Luke? They're in Jerusalem. Where are they in Acts? They're just outside of the city. I mean, it's different locations in each of those instances. And another difference is the exact audience. Up in in Matthew and Galilee, it says the 11 were there, the 11 disciples. Remember there were 12 and then Judas fell away. The other 11 go and meet Jesus on the mountainside. Uh, But when you get over to Luke, we get a sense there's a larger collection of followers, including some of the women who had followed Christ, not just the 11. When we get to Acts, uh, there's many reasons to believe this is the expression that is referenced by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about some 500 gathering with him at one setting. In every instance, they're all followers of Christ, but there's slightly different collections of followers of Christ in each of these 
stories. And lastly, the timing seems to be different. You know, in one instance, in Acts, it seems like it's the very last thing that Jesus said as he disappeared into the clouds. But you don't necessarily get that with his words in Luke. I mean, they walked a little further after that. And, And in Matthew, they're all the way up in Galilee. And Jesus could hop from place to place in his glorified body, but it would have taken the disciples at least a week to walk that distance. And so the timing of these events seems different. Now, when I mention those differences, we ought to ask the question, why? Why these differences? And you know, critics of the Bible have asked that question, but they don't ask it with a curious why. They ask it with an aha why. They say, hey, listen, your Bible is so full of errors that in Matthew and in Luke and in Acts, they get it wrong or none of them get it exactly right because they're all talking about the same event, but their facts are all jumbled up. They can't even get the timing or the location right. Now, that's one way of looking at Matthew and Luke and Acts. But you know what? I think that's a bad way to look at it. I think there's another explanation for why the different accounts. And that explanation actually is pretty compelling. Here's the deal. Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension. Isn't it interesting to think that over that 40 days, Jesus would be saying over and over and over again in different you know, words, but the same message, to different audiences, but all his followers in different locations, but the same commission to take this truth and to take it to the world. Jesus said it again and again and again. You know, sometimes we think of this moment of the Great Commission like some kind of a Jesus mic drop moment where he just kind of said it and dropped it and disappeared. And they would have been looking around going, what, what, what did he say? Did anybody get that? Did anybody get a, a pencil and a paper and write it down? Did anybody have a recording of this? No, it was too important of a message like that. Do you do that with your kids? If you're going to leave the house for a while and you have an important thing that you want them to remember, do you just say it once and then disappear? No, you'll probably say it a few times. You might even write a little note. The same thing was true of Christ. It was such an important message that he wanted to make sure that we got that he says it again and again and again in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. But honestly, when we think about it, it wasn't even that he just began talking this way at his resurrection. As a matter of fact, Jesus had set the stage for this commission throughout his ministry. Think of some of the ways that Jesus had prepared them for this through his ministry. We're not going to look at the individual passages, but I'll I'll reference them for you to see. We see in, in Mark 6 and in Luke 10 that Jesus sent out the disciples in pairs, two by two, to go out into the countryside and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was training them and preparing them for their involvement in this mission way back in Mark 6 and in Luke 10. It's part of what Jesus was doing all along. He involved them in miracles like the feeding of the masses, the 5,000 and the 4,000 in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8. Jesus could have just had everybody's stomachs be full He could have just thrown the bread and the fish himself to everyone, but no, he chose to involve his disciples. Why? Because he was teaching them and training them that they were going to be involved in his mission. We see that Jesus wasn't just doing these kinds of works among 
Jews, but he was also doing them among Gentiles to help set the stage and context to understand that this was a message for all the people. We see him going intentionally through Samaria in John chapter 4, engaging with a woman at the well and seeing a mini revival in a little city as this woman proclaimed what Jesus knew and who he was. We see that happening, and Jesus is intentional about that because he wanted them to know that it was for all the people. We see Jesus healing a Gentile woman in Matthew chapter 15 in a very public place with the disciples around so they would know that this was not just a tribal message. This was a message for all the people. And not only that, but Jesus spent time with his disciples unpacking what he was teaching. Not only did his disciples hear his sermons, but they got to spend time around the campfire. Mark 4 is a representation of that. Jesus preaching a sermon and then him explaining to them the meaning of that message. Why did Jesus go to all of those lengths? Because he was training the disciples for the mission he was going to send them on. Why is it that those events are included in Scripture? Why is it that the Great Commission is included in Scripture and preserved for thousands of years for you and I to see it as well? It's because Jesus has this commission not just for them but for us as well. As followers of Christ, who have been witnesses to God's great work in the world, we are called to take that message and to proclaim it in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. God has given us this commission as well. It's at the center of his purpose for us in 2017 and beyond. Now, think about this. If, if God's primary objective was for us to be people who worshiped him... now. Hear me, in the grand scheme of things, with eternity in mind, certainly our purpose is to glorify God. That's why we were created. But if our sole purpose was merely to glorify God, then if we would have died at the moment of our conversion, we would be in the presence of God and able to glorify Him more fully and and better there than we can here. And so if our sole purpose was merely to, to be a worshiper, then God would have taken us home at the very moment of our conversion. If our sole purpose had been just to become smarter or more knowledgeable about who God is, then God could have taken us home at the very moment of our conversion. Because though we can learn and grow now, how much greater will our learning and growth be in eternity? If the Bible says that we will know then even as we are fully known. But what is the one thing that we can do now that we cannot do later? It's to be engaged and involved in the mission of proclaiming Christ to the nations. And God has called us to this mission just as he has called the first followers in the passages that we read. And friends, that has great implications for us and that has great implications for me. God's desire by giving us this great and consistent commission is that our lives would be connected to his mission this year. Let me ask you, what would it look like if everyone who gathered here at Wildwood today, who's a follower of Christ, took this mission seriously this year? And what if the expression of that was that each of us would endeavor to share Christ with one person this year? Now, 365 days, but one person. Now, that we certainly might think, well, that sounds really meager, Mark, but just think about that. It's just one person, each of us. There'll be six to 700 people that will gather in this room, just adults, today to, to, to worship at Wildwood. What if we each took that message seriously? 
What if we were able to, to collectively cast six to 700 seeds this year, inviting people to follow Christ? What would that look like? What might God do? You know, crops that are where, the, where there is a lot of seed sown, there's a chance for a lot more fruit to be produced. And I believe that God wants us to cast seed broadly this year, that he might use us to reach our community for Christ this year. You know, this is something not just for you, but it's something also for me. You know, I certainly when I stand up here this year, I, I'm going to be pointing people to Christ and calling people to follow him. But you know what? I've got neighbors too. I'm going to be coaching a, a, a basketball team just like some of you guys are. I've, I've got places where I go and activities I'm a part of. And, and what would it look like for, for God to use me to share Christ with somebody, not just in here, but somebody out there this year? Friends, what has that permeated your mentality? Is it part of your mission for this year? If, if you would like that to be part of your mission this year and you love somebody to pray with you, I would love to pray with you to that end. You don't have to share specifics, but if you want to holler at me, send me an email, a phone call, come up and talk to me after the service, I would love to be praying for you this year. And I would love for you to pray for me this year that we would be proclaiming the good news of Christ in our community. But you know what? It's not just that, is it? I mean, that's, that's awesome. What a privilege. But it's even more than that. We have the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing, not just in this community, but around the world. We get to help see God's church grow in the Middle East and in Europe and in Asia. I mean, right now we've got a team in East Asia, and we've got opportunities over the next couple of weeks as a part of an event that we're calling Living Words, where we have a number of our international ministry partners who are coming back and are going to be here from the 14th to the 22nd of this month and be a part of our services and a part of a number of our gatherings, and we're going to have a chance to connect with them. And here's why. It is very intentional and is very purposeful that we're doing that. Because we have an opportunity to be a part of what God is doing, not just in our neighborhoods, but certainly in our neighborhoods, but also in the world at large. What does it look like for us to connect and become prayer partners with what God is doing around the world and, and, and really be connected to what God is doing there and, and think about the implications for our lives? We're going to be talking about that over the next couple of weeks, and we'd love for you to be with us on that mission. Because the first thing we see is that this great commission that Christ has given, it's consistent. For 2,000 years, it's been the same. A second thing that we see is that this is not just a great commission, but it's also a ceiling-shattering commission. It's a ceiling-shattering commission. We think about what Jesus was proclaiming here. He was proclaiming a scope of a mission that was far beyond their ability to live it out. He was calling them to something really, really big. I mean, think about the way that Jesus described the scope of this work again. He talked about it in Matthew 28 as making disciples of who? Of all nations. That scope is enormous. He talked about it in, in Luke chapter 24, proclaiming to who? To all the nations. That scope is large. There's, there's no lid on top of that. The ceiling is exploded off. The ceiling is shattered off. He talks about it in Acts 1 as taking it to where? To the ends of the earth. In each of those passages, we see a ceiling-shattering 
call for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, sometimes when we, we hear that, we think, well, yeah, but these are Bible people who had been with Jesus. Obviously, they would have totally understood that and thought that was totally doable because of the things that they had seen. But think about this. This was in a day before automobiles, before trains, before planes. I mean, just taking the gospel, just making the journey to the farthest places that they were even aware of would have stretched their imagination to the breaking point. And yet Jesus is consistent in his call. He's shattering the ceiling and saying, I want the the truth to not just be boxed up in the temple in Jerusalem, but I want it to be exploded to the ends of the earth. And guess what? You're going to be my vessel to get it there. This is something that was mentioned in Jesus' last words. It was mentioned in the Great Commission, but it is consistent with what God had said from the very beginning. Think back to Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses where God calls Abram and says, I'm going to bless you, Abram, but I'm going to bless you with a specific purpose in mind. Listen to what it says. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse, and listen to this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God had a ceiling-shattering goal from the beginning. But he didn't just mention it to Abram and then forget about it. It's throughout the Old Testament. Another representation of that is in Psalm chapter 67, the 67th Psalm. I want to read to you. Uh, This entire psalm, it's short, but it, it talks about the heart of God for the world. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among who? Among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let who? Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity. You guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And not only is it in Genesis, and not only is it in the Psalm, but we also is in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 18 and following says this. It says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming. To gather, who? All nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. To Tarshish, to Pol, and to Lud. Who draw the bow. To Tubal, and to Javan. To the coastlands far away. That have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among who? Among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And on and on and on. Friends, what we see here is this consistent commission that Christ gave had a a ceiling-shattering component to it. It was not to be boxed into one area. It was to go to the whole world. But again, here's the question we got asked. Did, Did the disciples fully get it? Well, the answer to that is really 
No. Now, that's surprising to us in one level because, again, we think of them as Bible people and they, they seem to get it in spots. But when we look at, as the disciples first grasped this message, it took them a while for the implications of the Great Commission to settle in. And one way for us to, to see that is to look at a timeline of the way that the spread of the gospel kind of played out, specifically with the gospel going from a primarily Jewish context with the disciples in Jerusalem uh, to Gentiles coming to Christ around the world. Now, the Great Commission happened right after uh, the, the resurrection of Christ in that period of time, the 40 days and the passages that we have seen. And then a few days after that, the Spirit comes at Pentecost and the promise that God had given for the Spirit to come and empower them, it happens. And after the empowering of the Spirit, and after that experience at Pentecost, did they get it then? Well, they still struggled in their understanding of this. Some 15 years go by until we have this central event that happens in Acts chapter 10 where a Gentile named Cornelius invites Peter to come to his house. Now, Peter would have never normally gone to the home of a Gentile. He was very nervous about it. He even makes that clear in Acts 10 as you read the passage. But God made sure that Peter showed up for that appointment by giving Peter a very special dream with animals coming down in a sheet and God saying, you're going to go to Cornelius' house, all that stuff. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house and Cornelius and his household come to faith in Christ. And we might think, surely they got it then. Surely Peter got it then. But What we find out is that five years after that event, we have the events of Galatians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 15. Now, in in those two events, in Galatians 2, Peter is hanging out in Galatia with some Gentile converts, and he's hanging out with them like everything's cool until his Jewish friends from Jerusalem show up, and then what does he do? He distances from his Gentile friends. And when he distances from them, Paul gives him a stern rebuke. It shows that Peter is still struggling to apprehend and and to to apply the implications of the Great Commission. There's a a council that takes place at that point where the church gathers in Acts 15 to make a declaration about the appropriateness of the Gentiles coming to faith. Again, they're still trying to figure out the implications of something that happened at this point 20 years earlier. But again, the question is, did they fully get it even then? Well, 10 years after that, we get Romans chapter 14, and this is representative of a number of other letters and epistles in the New Testament where we see continued struggles between Jewish followers of Christ understanding what it looks like for them to relate to Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. See, it was a challenge, and it was a struggle. Now, when you add all that up, friends, that's 30 years, and it wasn't even fully resolved then. Now, why do I share that with us. I share that with us because I was thinking about this um, this week as I was looking through these passages. You know what I, you know what I saw? So, you know, this, this took 30 years. You know, I've, I've been a believer in Christ now for 27 years. And you know what? I'm still struggling to get it. It took them a while to get it. Guess what? It takes me a while to get it too. You know, certainly there are moments in my life where it looks like I really got it. You know, there's, there's, there's moments not exactly like that. I don't want to, you know, have a, a false impression of me. Not exactly like Cornelius, but there's moments where I seem to get it more than others. And yet, me understanding the purpose and the mission of God as central to my life is something that I still struggle with. Anybody relate to that? 
There might have been a point in your life when you first came to Christ and you got it and you were out and you were proclaiming Christ on the streets and you were excited about that. There was a point where you were at a missions conference. You went to a Campus Crusade Winter Conference when you were a student and you were fired up and you were ready to take the world. And then you look at your life now and you think, you know what, it's just I don't have the same passion that I used to have. My connection to God's purpose and his mission in the world just isn't the same. You know what? We struggle with the same things that Peter did. It takes us a while to get it. But here's what we need to see. Over that 30 years, did the mission ever change? Over that 30 years, did God give up on his church? The mission was still the same. The call was still the same. He called him back again and again and again to live out the great, consistent, ceiling-shattering mission of the church. Friends, as we sit here looking into the new year, this mission that Christ is, is on is a mission for you, and it's a mission for me. If you're a follower of Christ, this is a mission for us. He's been consistent with it. He's preserved it. He got it to us. Our lives need to gather around the mission of Christ. As a church, we need to gather around the mission of Christ. There are many things that could distract us, but we need to gather around the mission of Christ. In, in this city, in our Jerusalem and Judea, that we would be those who would be able to proclaim Christ here, but also around the world, that we would connect with what God is doing around the world, that God would use even a place like Wildwood Community Church with this consistent ceiling-shattering commission to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Because God has promised his presence and his power to see it through. What will it look like for you this year? Don't say, well, that used to be me. Or God has given up on me. Or that's for somebody else. God's patience with the early church is his patience with us. But this is our year. Let's lean in and trust him to work through us what otherwise would be impossible. Breaking through the ceiling and sharing Christ everywhere that we go. Friends, I'm so excited about the opportunity that we've got over the next couple of weeks with the Living Words event to meet some of our, our partners around the world, for us to be able to lean in with them um, and to learn more of what God is doing, that our vision for what Christ is doing in the world could increase and our partnership with him would increase. Because guess what? That's the mission that Christ is on. And he's invited to include us each step of the way. You know, we've been talking about the famous last words of Christ. He's Jesus. Of course, they're famous. But guess what? They're not just famous. They're also great. Let's follow him together. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to look at your word. Thank you that your, your mission is consistent. We, we don't wake up today and find out that you've called us to something else. But for 2,000 years, you've called us to the same mission. And Father, I pray really a commissioning over all of us consistent with what Christ has proclaimed, Father, that you would direct our paths this year to be on mission with you in our city and around the world, that we could see your work come clear around us. Father, thank you that you have given us this, this presence of your spirit in our lives to both encourage and empower us as we go. Father, you have guaranteed the success of your mission. I pray that we would have the faith to follow you there. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.